Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing of Nations podcast, your podcast on religious liberty, end time events, and civil issues of society. And today, we are privileged to have some of my brothers in the American Century, a publication that I'm also involved with. We have Lemuel Sapien and James Dickinson. Thank you, brothers, for joining us. And can you please introduce yourselves for our listeners? Yes, uh, this is Lemuel Sapien, and uh, I am a student pastor, also historian, and I also head up American Century. Hi, I'm James Dickinson, and I'm an attorney practicing law in Northern California. I've had the pleasure of being with Peter a few times on his podcast, and I am a contributor to American Century. And thank you all for joining us. We're all contributors to American Century, actually, Lemuel is the spearhead and the editor of that website. Lemuel, what compelled you to start the Century? I felt impressed to start an online publication in the vein of what used to be the American Century in, in Adventism. Uh, that uh, publication lasted from the end of the 19th century and the first uh, decade of the, um, the 20th century. Uh, we do have a successor publication that is headed by our denomination, Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is called Liberty Magazine. However, felt that we needed a more independently run journal, online journal, if you will, so that uh, we could be a little more hard-hitting on certain topics and uh, reveal things a little more without, you know, being too constrained by uh, any bureaucracy, if you will. What are some topics that you feel that needs to be hit harder? In the area of religious liberty, there is an ongoing culture war that we know is going on here in the United States of America. And it's a different animal, if you will, from what it was uh, towards the turn of the 19th and 20th century. So we have different issues, um, definitely a, a lot that could be called political, and there's some theological also that kind of merge together. And these are the issues that affect us from day to day. It's something that we see is able to really influence whole elections here in this country. So it's it's something that's definitely needing a closer look at, something we definitely need to be a voice in so that we can be a force for good, for liberty and justice, not just for us, but for all citizens of the United States. Now, how do people access this publication? I can go online and go to www.theamericancentury.com. And you also have a book out. Yes, Peter, I have a book out. It's called Not of This World, and it's available online on Amazon. It's also available on the website. If uh, people will scroll down near the bottom, there is a place where they could uh, click on a link, and they will have access to the book on our distributor. Now, can you summarize what the book is about? Yes, the book is actually a treatise on the separation of church and state in the American context. I'll make the biblical case for the separation of church and state, because there is a ongoing perception that uh, Christians are for the unification of church and state when actually the opposite should be quite true if we take our understanding from the bible and aside from the bible it's also an american principle um, we know from the inception of this country 
that we have the principle of separation of church and state, not verbatim in the Constitution, but we see it in our First Amendment when we have the non-establishment clause and the free exercise clause right there in uh, the First Amendment with regards to religion. Now, Jim, you are a contributor to the American Center. You have written several articles. One recently has kind of stirred the pot. It's in regards to the Bible-burning incident in Portland, Oregon with the protests. Can you tell us about that article and what compelled you to write it? Yeah, well, I think uh, I'm relied on sometimes to stir the pot. No, in, in, in fact, I, I will often say, hey, Lemuel, I've got an idea. Can I write? Or, you know, So it's on something, and he's always accommodating. Um, but uh, no, I, I was intending to stir the pot here with this article. I think there's a perception in um, conservative Christianity, certainly, and maybe it extends over into Catholicism, at least conservative Catholicism, that uh, the enemy is, uh, you know, the the God-hating secularist or the atheist. And what's interesting with Adventist eschatology is it runs contrary to that concept, at least as it relates to end-time events. So if you look at, for example, uh, Revelation 13, we're warned of this uh, this unification of church and state. The term that's used in Revelation 13 is is an image created to the beast. The first beast in Revelation 13 is religio-political power, if I can get that out. Um, so it combines religion and politics, functions as a spokesperson or a mouthpiece for God, and also uh, enforcing the law of the land. And the second beast of Revelation 13 makes an image to the first beast, which we as Adventists understand to be the unification of church and state and the attempt to force religion upon the masses as a way to try to solve the problems of society, the problems that the right believe uh, attend to atheism, secularism, paganism, whatever it is. And so the the writing of this article was, was prompted by um, the religious right in this country, in America, saying, hey, look, uh, we have these issues, we have our own form of eschatology, our own understanding of what's to happen at the end, uh, that the, uh, you know, the, the secularists or the atheists are going to try to take over, and we need to get together as Christians and stand against this. And so, um, in discussing um, these symbols of, of the flag and the Bible, you are able to address both um, the concept of nationalism generally, but also the idea of Christian nationalism, which really can be seen in Revelation 13, this rise of this false Christian movement. And it's you know elaborated for those of us who are Adventists in the book, The Great Controversy, as to how, among other places, as to how this is going to transpire or take place. And so I thought it would be appropriate to write this article as a corrective to point us back to the fact that Jesus stated, my kingdom is not of this world, right? Render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and God what belongs to God. Don't try to render to God um, what belongs to God through Caesar, that these are separate spheres. And so the article talks about, among other things, um, the, the problems with blasphemy laws, which when we think of blasphemy laws, we're oftentimes thinking about uh, legislation or, or practices that are, are taking place somewhere far away from the United States. But our history uh, as Americans, actually, there is there is a history of, of such laws in, in the books in various states. I quote one of these laws in the article and explain 
some of the reasons why these laws are, are troubling. And I also indicate that there are a number of persons, um, especially among evangelicals, who support the concept that the Bible should have a great deal of influence on our law. And so the same group that, that is oftentimes saying, we don't want Sharia law in America, we don't want that to take place here, they're not objecting as, as Lemuel would object to, or as I would object to that concept, on the basis of the separation of church and state, but they're objecting because, wait, we don't want that, we want our own version of a religious theocracy, as it were. And so um, it's important for us, um, I believe, as Adventists, as, as persons that have this unique perspective that's informed by Revelation 13, among other places, to be able to say to the religious uh, right in America, the religious side of America, I guess if you want to break it into sides, unfortunately that, that seems to be the way things are, are going, uh, secular versus religious, to say, hey, look, you're, you're actually misguided in your attempt to try to solve problems. What you're, what you're actually going to do is take away liberty in your attempt to try to, um, you know, step on these people who are doing things that you may find abhorrent, burning the flag or burning Bibles, things that, you know, obviously none of us here talking today would, would say, go out and burn a flag, go out and burn a Bible. We wouldn't advocate for that. But in the attempt to try to stop such things, um, there's a very real uh, chance, and not only a chance, but we know from prophecy it will happen, of, of the curtailing of liberty, of the, uh, the loss of this precious doctrine of the separation of church and state, and, and ultimately a form of a forced uh, religion that is, you know, any type of forced religion is obviously a false religion that's going to be pushed on uh, the people of the United States and, and, and ultimately uh, the people of the world. And so uh, the, the Adventist Church and Adventists uh, in particular have a responsibility to, to warn and to make people aware that, you know, it requires a, a deeper understanding of the issues and not just, hey, that's, that's bad, flag burning is bad, or Bible burning is bad, but that there's something more um, that's in play. And I don't know, Peter, maybe you want to talk about, you know, uh, touch on Daniel 11 a little bit as to the concepts of the King of the South and the King of the North, how this kind of ties into what we're seeing right now. Oh, yes, prophetically, there's two competing powers, according to Daniel chapter 11. In Daniel chapter 11, you have the king of the south, which is described as Egypt. And uh, we know that Egypt needs to be applied spiritually because they have no end-time significance here today. And then you have the king of the north, which was geographically in Babylon, which we apply to spiritual Babylon. Now, Egypt represents that of secular humanism. That was where Hellenism and, and where Alexander the Great and uh, Greek philosophy was flourishing, and that represents secular humanism, atheism. And then you had the King of the North, which is the church-state system of uh, religious political authority that are competing powers that are fighting against each other. And so we're seeing that reality right now here in the United States. And ultimately, we know in Daniel chapter 1140 that the King of the North, the religious political power, will defeat the secular atheistic power in regards to who has hegemony, before Jesus comes. That'll segue to my next question for both of you. Is patriotism biblical? Is patriotism biblical? Well, uh, let's take a look at what patriotism uh, means. Uh, in the dictionary, it merely says that a patriot is someone who loves and supports their country. And uh, 
I guess there are several applications that you put you can put on that. Uh, for example, uh, what country is it that we have love and support for? Uh, is it our earthly country uh, that we have citizenship to, or the the heavenly country, which um, we are to, of course, love and support the kingdom of Christ? Uh, the key thing there is that whatever patriotism you ascribe to, there still has to be a separation of spheres. Like uh, Jim had said, mentioned earlier, that to Caesar and that to God, we know that the sphere that uh, Caesar is in charge of uh, in this present uh, stage right now, um, I believe all three of us are citizens of the United States. And of course, we love our uh, country and we, um, we support the country as well. Uh, is that type of patriotism uh, biblical? I think it is in, in the sense that we render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. And so we have a, we need a certain amount of patriotism to uh, be good citizens and, um, and by being good citizens in the world, we also show ourselves to be uh, good Christians by showing to the world that, you know, we're not objecting to every ordinance of man. We only object to ordinances of man that violate our conscience, that uh, violate an ordinance of God, if you will. And I think there is a healthy amount of patriotism that can be exercised. Uh, and there is then the unhealthy patriotism, which in fact, probably could be categorized as merely uh, a display, if you will. A display, a, a facade to hide some of the more uh, bigoted uh, and prejudices that people have. So, which means that, okay, I love my country, you're not of this country or you're originally from somewhere else. So I'm a patriot and I love my country and therefore you're not welcome here. And that type of patriotism or, or nationalism is what we will be discussing. I believe in a little bit is definitely not biblical and there is no room. I believe in the Christian practice for that kind of, uh, behavior or that kind of uh, belief, if you will. Now, this is for both Jim and Lemuel. What is the dangers of nationalism in this nation? Well, so <laughs> the, when you say the term nationalism, it, you, there's a lot that that word is kind of loaded uh, right now. So, so Donald Trump, for example, ran as a nationalist. And that's to be understood, I think, um, it can mean a number of things, and it has been used to mean a number of things. Um, but I think primarily as it related to, for example, his position on trade, he was trying to make uh, a, a distinction between a globalist and and a nationalist, someone that's, uh, you know, a globalist would be somebody that's interested in a like a global order. And he came along and said, hey, we need to put America first, right? Not picking on Donald Trump. I'm just using that as, as a way to define nationalism. Then you can look at uh, white nationalism, right, where it's not an issue of trade or sovereignty, 
uh, it's an issue of um, that a, an American is defined by, you know, the color of one's skin, right? Which, you know, doesn't take much in this, uh, in this setting or the person should be listening to this uh, podcast to, to quickly dismiss that form of nationalism as being an absurdity. However, there is, you know, a very live, uh, very active and, and lively uh, group of white nationalists in, uh, in the United States. Um, there are white nationalists in Europe. Um, uh, it's, it's a phenomenon. And um, I won't go any further into that because I think it would just kind of take us off topic and maybe uh, be too political, as it were, at this point. Uh, and then I think that the type of nationalism that's most concerning to me and we may share this uh, sentiment, is, is Christian nationalism, where the, the spheres um, are, are not separate, where the church uh, is no longer just concerned with being a church. It's also concerning itself with um, running the government, right, where what it means to be an American or what it means to, um, to create policy or law uh, is guided by what... Um, what the Bible would say, or what Christ would teach, or what it what not, and that form of nationalism is the thing to fear. It is the thing to warn people against. The other forms are they're not without their problems. Obviously, white nationalism is abhorrent. Right, the concept of that is is terrible. But as a matter of prophecy, um, though I think white nationalism and Christian nationalism uh, have have ties. They they tend to blend, and they've and and that's happened uh, specifically, we just listened to a sermon today where those, uh, those two camps are, are, have blended post the Civil War, um, but uh, I digress. Anyway, the, the point of, uh, of being concerned with Christian nationalism is that what is going to arise is a form of godliness, a type of Christianity that will... Um, not only enforce this false system on the world, but make it difficult for true Christianity to be able to to exist and to be able to prosper. The concern in my mind is this unification of church and state, um, and maybe that ties in um, white nationalists, maybe it ties in persons that are sympathetic to the idea that we need to have America be first and we need to lead the world, uh, these types of things. I will add that in the book of Revelation, again, back to Revelation 13, um, we read in verse 4, it says, And they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so the, the worshiping of the beast is to say, Wow, the beast is really powerful. Who is able to fight against this beast? It's not that the beast is good or that the beast is free. Or that the beast, you know, ensures that liberty is protected, but that the beast is powerful. And so there's a form of worship at the end that is going to be like that, where persons are going to say, yeah, the United States is the way, not because it's right or because it stayed true to its founding principles, but because it's powerful. And if, it, if you don't get on the right side, you're going to get stepped on by it. And that's actually a form of worship, believe it or not, in the Bible. Um, so, yeah, nationalism is, it can be scary, and I think it should be contrasted with true patriotism, which is a love for country and in the context of a, an American citizen wanting to preserve 
liberty in the way that the founding fathers had the insight, uh, maybe providentially, to articulate such things and to do that um, through this process of, of uh, you know, going through these, uh, these challenges, uh, these end-time challenges, uh, to, to fight to preserve um, our liberty. That, that's what I would define as being a true patriot in the end times. Yeah, I, I was just saying that uh, on top of that, we know from biblical prophecy that there is a Christian element to this beast power. Uh, we know in Revelation chapter 17, it talks of the woman who sits up scarlet-colored beast, and a woman symbolic of a church. Um, and so we kind of here in the United States, I know that there's a lot of different uh, perspectives on eschatology, even amongst Christians. And so definitely we have the futuristic, um, uh, and we could talk more about that in, in detail later, but the, fu- the futurist interpretation of prophecy, which does envision a more atheistic uh, opponent, antagonist to Christianity during the end times. But Christian nationalism then would be the logical, if you will, counter to that. And that's the danger there, because if, if they're looking for a, an entity that's not informed by the right type of eschatology or the right kind of uh, type of biblical prophecy, uh, then they will build up or feed the wrong beast, if you will, and it will happen to be this the Antichrist power that the, the Bible is really uh, warning about. And Christian nationalism, as we just discussed, is religious nationalism. I'm looking online. It says Christian nationalists primarily focus on internal politics, such as passing laws that reflect their view of Christianity and its role in the political and social life. And so this is really what Christian nationalists try to do. They try to uh, establish the kingdom of Christ here on this earth, and that is against our founding fools as as a country. And not only that, it's against the principles of the Bible when Jesus had uh, created the separation between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom not of the of this world, which is his, his kingdom in heaven. And so we need to really know the the difference. We really need to be careful not to, uh, not to really buy into this, oh, just this Christian culture. Oh, it's Christians against uh, the secularists and all, all the other. So since I'm a Christian, I might as well be on the Christian national side because, you know, there's this dichotomy that they see. A lot also that I have uh, individuals that I talk to uh, is not that they really uh, have this enthusiasm for Christian nationalism. I what I have sensed is that there's a fear that oh if I if I side with uh, with um, with supporting or advocating for freedom for all, freedom for atheists, freedom for Muslims and Hindus or, or whatever. I am siding with them in a way. So there is kind of a uh, a fear element that oh I, I'm I'm betraying my Christian uh, my Christian identity 
by uh, supporting a, a, a free marketplace of religious ideas, when in fact, really the furthest thing from the truth, uh, given what we uh, see in the scriptures, okay, from the words of Christ, and also from the principles that we have in this country. And it was a James Madison who basically, and I paraphrase what he's saying, but essentially what James Madison was uh, saying was that the more we separate government and religion, more pure both can be. The more pure government can be because it's not suppressing a liberty, and the more pure church can be. Because then people go to church not being forced. They're not being hypocrites, okay? They're not uh, uh, coerced to go and follow a, a religious tradition because the law requires them to. But they're doing so from the desire of their heart, from their conscience. And so this is what the pitfalls are for Christian nationalism. And it's just really disheartening to see a lot of Christians and even those in the Seventh-day Adventist church that are buying into this uh, culture. So, Sorry, Peter. I just wanted to, to bring a few Bible verses to bear on this point that Lemuel was making. And that is, if you go to 1 John chapter 2 and verses, uh, starts in verse 18, you can see that the Antichrist is not a secular atheist power in the Bible. It, it comes out of, they went out from us, John writes, but they were not of us. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we, we read of the man of sin, the son of perdition, that's uh, opposing and exalting himself above all that is called God, but he sits in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So this is not a secular atheist um, power system. This is a false Christian system. That is, that is masquerading as, as the true Christian way. The evangelical theology or eschatology that says that the Antichrist is going to, you know, uh, defile the temple that once it's been rebuilt in Jerusalem, and, and you know, he's going to be this, this God-hater and uh, secularist and so forth. That is not what the Bible teaches as it relates to the concept of Antichrist. Antichrist is... Uh, someone that stands in the place of God, pretending to be God. And so when we're looking at end-time events, uh, the, the concern the, with regard to the Antichrist is a false Christian uh, system. And uh, we don't need to go into all of what that means now, but I, I just wanted to share those verses. Now, is there a problem with Christian nationalism within our own denomination? Christian nationalism in first world America has penetrated into our own uh, denomination. And how do people ask that? Well, uh, just by scurrying several prophecy sites uh, and, and those uh, several independent uh, sources that are you know, run by members in the church, and uh, you know we don't have time to go out and reference each one. But what I've noticed in the trend is that there is a lot of talk against uh, opening, you know, a fear of borders, open borders, fear of uh, people coming in from uh, fear, especially of Islam, as uh, as a lot of uh, 
commentators and articles that I've read that they're fearing that the United States will become a, an Islamic nation or a Muslim nation as with all these immigrants that are coming in. And um, this, they have kind of uh, merged into, they try to meld it into our prophetic understanding of of Revelation, of Daniel and Revelation. And a lot of the times uh, I have seen uh, Adventists try to explain this disparity, if you will, between what they're teaching and what the classical view is uh, regarding Adventist eschatology is because we identify and we, uh, we finger the antiquity, uh, the papal power or papacy. And so in order to explain that away, uh, they try and, and point out to Catholicism as you know, the originator of Islam and how a lot of Islamic practices are really uh, down deep, really just Catholic. And some will point to how uh, the current Pope, Pope Francis, is, uh, more, is more open to a more ecumenical uh, move to join world religions. And I get that, and I get that there is that view, but we have to understand what prophecy really is telling us. It's not teaching a melding of different beliefs here and there, uh, because there are a lot of belief systems that are just mutually exclusive of one another. You can't say, oh, this is, you know, Muslims really teach Catholicism the way deep down inside. Okay, you might run some parallels here and there. But at the end of the day, if you run their theology against each other, it's not compatible and they're not going to mix. Okay? And so something has to give, right? You can't say that, oh, Hindus, you know, they have some, you know, weird melding with Catholicism or here and there. There's some Eastern. I get that Catholicism has a lot of paganism in it. Okay? It's a mix of paganism and Christianity. But what the eschatology is really saying is that the most egregious, uh, the most egregious act of this papal system is that it forced people to follow its its theology. Okay, it's not it's not trying to appease everybody by accepting here and there and take the uh, whole. Middle Ages, medieval period, for example. Okay, how did the Catholic Church operate? Did they, did they just get all the world under its banner by um, this Arian theology or this heretical theology here to bring people into their fold? No, they established human traditions, they established human doctrines, and then they persecuted people who would not conform to these beliefs. And so you can't take the stripes off a tiger. It is what it is. Catholicism right now will seem like, and you'll see this in the great controversy as well, uh, you know, Rome is tolerant where she is helpless. Okay, she doesn't have the power right now in, in the first world. She doesn't have the power in free America. So in order to appease people, yeah, they're going to say, um, 
certain things to appease the left and the right. But at the heart of this Antichrist system is forced worship. And in order to force worship, they will force beliefs surrounding a certain moral framework, doctrines, dogma, and they will require people from all over the world to conform or to suffer grievous consequences. This is different from what others try and say, oh, this, you know, this coexist thing, this whole melding of certain religions. And it's going to be one world religion. What does that even look like? There's that has no coherence to it whatsoever. What we are looking for, and the Bible tells us, is that there is a false system of worship that will try to enforce a morality upon the world that looks Christian. I mean, it's a woman, right, that rides on on the scarlet beast. It's not you know some other. It's it, it is a woman or a an apostate church. So it is. People will look at it. When you look at a woman, you don't say, "Oh, you know, that's a that's a man, right?" Or that's a, or whatever. When you see a woman, you know, okay. And the woman represents a church, a, a Christian church, or God, uh, a a uh, God's people. But this is a harlot. She has, um, uh, she's drunk, the wine of fornication, and this is the involvement of of the church with the political systems of the world. And it's interesting that a lot of people, even Seventh-day Adventists, can't see that. I, I'm going to be, I, not that I dare add to anything that Lemuel just said, because I think it was, was very thorough and, and brilliant. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw in here that I think that the, the dividing line between those that receive the mark of the beast and those that don't, you guys can disagree with me if you want. How do we respond to Christ? And how do we respond to the idea that he was a suffering servant, right? Uh, Isaiah 53 lays it out. But what's interesting in Isaiah 53 is he was despised and rejected of men. So the question is, did Jesus come to set up his church to serve or to rule, to conquer and reign? And the power in Christianity is in is in the service. It's in the it's in following Christ's example. It's in having Him live inside of us. But when we forsake that concept and that relationship, it's not just an abstraction. It's a relationship with Christ, of course. Then we are left with uh, with the only alternative, and that's to seek uh, to rule. And I think the distinction there between those that receive the mark of the beast and enforce the mark of the beast. I presume the ones that enforce it also receive it. Um, and those who are following the Lamb wherever he goes in Revelation 14, I think it's verse 5, and proclaiming the three angels' messages of Revelation 14, is this reaction or response, rather, to to Christ? Is, is he someone that we find to be attractive? Was his dying on the cross something that we are attracted to and that we want to go and do the same, that we want to go and be uh, be fools for him? Or are we trying to um, bring it at home? Are we trying to be popular? Are we trying to be successful? Uh, yeah. Are we trying to be fools for Christ, or are we trying to make other people's fools? <laughs> you know? 
that's it. And I think what has happened with Catholicism, I think even from the, the outset with Constantine, um, if you were to trace it back to Constantine, um, it was always about ruling, conquered by this, we're going to take the cross and we're going to subjugate others. But as it relates to Protestantism, it's it's been a departure from the true principles of Christ and the Bible teaching, and what, what they found themselves left with is a, a religion that has no power because they've left Christ and they've exchanged him for a uh, the sword um, force. And so the, the transition of a pure faith to apostate Protestantism is uh, the forsaking of the simple message of the gospel of service and love of, uh, and adopting this concept of we have to rule, we have to lead, we have to... to uh, dominionism. Right. We have to conquer. Well, you can speak on dominionism. I'll let you do that. You understand that topic probably better than I, so... So, Lemio, what is dominionism? Okay, well, dominionism is a group of... Um, well, it's an ideology... Uh, you could say a set of ideologies because there's not really one uh, one central uh, tenet, if you will. It's a group of Christian political ideologies that seek to institute a nation governed by Christians, and that goes back to uh, Christian nationalism, uh, based upon their understanding of a biblical law. And uh, that doctrine is taken actually from Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, uh, where the Bible says, and God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Now, uh, just ignore the egregious uh, <laughs> the egregious misapplication of the Scripture uh, to what dominionists are trying to uh, achieve today, but uh, you can imagine the type of uh, ideas that can emanate from this type of, of of mindset, of this thinking, this attitude that, okay, we need to uh, conquer, or as, as Jim was saying, uh, to rule. And now we talk about ruling in the sense of a worldly sense, that uh, to have control over someone else and, and that sort of thing. And this really is what drives um, this Christian dominionism. It's uh, a, a model of that is found in Reformed theology, or Calvinist Reformed theology, and it's called Christian Reconstructionism. And it started with the teachings of uh, R.J. Rushduni, and that's way back in the 1960s and 70s. just want to point out is that um, a lot of people, especially uh, here in Adventism, when we talk about liberty issues, they'll look at this group and say, oh, you know, they're way out there. You know, there's no... There's no way that they uh, they can um, you know have any influence in those, but they are really more influential than uh, you would imagine. I mean, we just talked about several uh, in examples and and politics, and because this is, uh, and here's why they're dangerous. Not because of their ideas, but the fact that they are using the political machine to accomplish uh, uh, their goals. Okay, and and we we who you know don't want to get in, involved in politics, we don't want to play that uh, game with them. We need to find a way to uh, counter that, and it's hard to do that because then the opposition 
to this Christian nationalism, sometimes has its own uh, extremes that, you know, we as Christians, we can't, we can't um, uh, if you will, ascribe to. We're stuck with the question of what can we do? How do we counter this uh, idea of, of dominionism? And it goes back to the Bible. We need to show what the Word of God says, and that will put these called biblical believers in their place. Not that we put them in their place, but the Word of God puts them in. And this is something that we need to uh, bring out there. And this is part of what I believe is the work of American Century to uh, bring to the forefront so that we can show people that the Bible is really teaching us not to force people to become Christians, but to look upon the Savior in a winsome and wholesome light, not using uh, conspiracy theories here left and right to try and scare people into the faith, but to have genuine gospel experience, to have the love of Christ in our preaching. Now, Lemuel, can you describe to us, you did extensive reading on this topic, so can you describe to us the original position of religious liberty with our Adventist pioneers, such as A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner? Did they believe in religious liberty only for Christians, or was it more than that? Definitely believed in religious liberty for all, and that is a principle that they had built their whole religious liberty uh, ideas upon. And the reason for that is just simply because the way we treat other people is how we're going to be treated in turn. And that is a very Christian principle, something that Christ taught is also known as the golden rule. So I'm quoting from the American Sentinel. This was published in one of its uh, editions between 1898 to 1902. I believe this was penned by C.P. Bowman. Uh, he wrote that no government can be for religion without at the same time being against religion, for no religion can be named that is not contrary to some other religion. The government ought to be against no religion, and it be only so by being non-religious. So in other words, the government, the secular government, should have religious neutrality built into it. Uh, and this was a religious liberty position that our pioneers had, uh, pioneers that we have in the um, uh, context of religious liberty. And that principle is, you know, applicable because uh, there are religious minorities who will be persecuted if we establish a, a Christian theocracy in this country. Let me just face it, even if the vast majority of people in this country were Christians, there would still be a few that would be dissident who would say, I, I can't conscientiously uh, you know, follow this, this law that's established upon the majority religion because it goes against my conscience. And this was the struggle of the Protestants in the in the Middle Ages, and that's when when the Protestants came out. Actually, the word Protestant comes from the protest of the uh, Lutherans at the Dieter. And you know, we we tend to forget that when we say that America is based on Protestantism, we think a lot of people think, oh, oh it's it's based upon 
Protestant theology, okay, or Protestant doctrine. It's not based upon any theology at all. It's based upon a protest against this oppression that happens, especially during that time when the Protestants were first coming out. They were oppressed by the machinery of church and state that the the Roman Catholic Church had instituted. And, you know, in my my book, I talk about this, uh, but briefly, I talk about how that came, that principle of separation church and state came into the colonies with the the pilgrims and how the uh, Puritans tried to squash it and how uh, Rhode Island uh, and Providence Colony started with Roger Williams and all that. And then I did not discuss this, but further down the line, as these uh, Protestants um, were prominent here in, in America after independence, we see that um, you know the Protestants began to squash the liberty of Catholics. When Catholics started to immigrate here into the United States um, right before the uh, Civil War and even after the Civil War, when we had immigrants from Ireland and uh, from other countries that, that were Catholic, and since the Catholics were a minority, then they were persecuted by these so-called Protestants. And I don't think that's really the, the true Protestant character to be persecuting anyone, for that matter. Is there a risk if we allow religions, all religions, is there a risk that there would be conversions to Islam or conversions to Hinduism, and a lot more people will be probably, you know, uh, become Buddhist here in the United States? Yeah, that's a risk. But at least people follow their consciences from the heart. And this is what A.T. Jones said in the American Sentinel in February 1, 1888. He said, we would rather be classed with infidels in opposition to the tyranny of a religious despot than to be found on the side of those who call themselves Christians while promoting it. And so that, I believe, should be our work today as well. And we're called infidels, aren't we, Lemuel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. By uh by sometimes even by people in our own church. Now, Jim, there was a recent article posted, layman publication on the issue of abortion and the position of abortion within the church. And you uh, had a vigorous dialogue about the article and the article's author. Can you tell us about the situation, what happened, and what position that you think the church should have in this sensitive issue? Well, um, yeah, I don't know if I want to get into uh, that specific article or the author and, and the back and forth, but um, I can say this. My own, you have podcasts of, uh, of us talking, Peter going back, what, a year and a half or so. You can listen to the first podcast we did, Peter, and you can see what my position on abortion was. Um, I was very sympathetic to the concept that uh, abortion in most cases is unjustifiable. And if we're going to protect life in other contexts, that we should do so um, with regard to the unborn. And I'm specifically referring to um, protect life by way of legislation or law. Um, But as I've thought about it and spoken with persons who have been dealing with the issue for some time, uh, it's become uh, clear to me that it's problematic for the uh, the Adventist Church to... um, to be 
an advocacy wing of the pro-life movement. Um, we've taken a position as a church uh, fairly recently, uh, which uh, I believe is biblical. I, it's a pro-life position. It does allow for uh, an exception uh, in certain circumstances. Um, but again, that relates to our church. It advises and informs um, members. It's not intended to be applied to society uh, generally or imposed on anyone outside of the church. And honestly, the Adventist church doesn't do a lot of imposing of, of hardly anything these days. Um, and so it's it's really functioning as a guideline. Um, at least in America, I don't see that there's a lot of uh, imposing of anything regarding uh, moral choices um, within the churches. I, I could be wrong, but I don't see that happening um, much, if at all. So um, the, the church has taken steps to clarify our position on abortion. I think the statement is biblical. I agree with it, but I think that it's extremely problematic to then take our position and and run with it as some sort of a, uh, again, as an arm of the pro-life movement. For the reason, there may be other reasons, but that you know, half the country is, uh, you know, maybe a little bit less than half the country is, is pro-choice. And I think to push a pro-life position in, uh, in politics or in society, it would turn off uh, half the country. You would lose half your audience. And our objective as a church is to reach people. And so the recent article that I wrote on, um, on this issue, I, I concluded with the, the call to yeah, support life, but do so in a way that is not just moralizing or seeking to legislate morality, but is actually seeking um, to help persons, right? Um, in fact, not, not just, and when I say not just, I, not at all. We shouldn't be, in my opinion, as a church getting involved in the politics of this, but that we should be taking the steps to you know, support expected mothers, um, adopt uh, children if we're able to do that. Um, there's a number of things that we can do as individuals and as a church um, that evidence our pro-life position without having to get involved in the politics of it. And I truly do believe that the issue of abortion is a Trojan horse. It's a way to try to build uh, affinity between the religious right and, um, among other organizations or denominations, the Adventist Church. And the, the problem with the religious right is there really is no room for any sort of dissent. They they, they really will take you over. They'll co-opt the movement and, and take it over. And pretty soon you're getting sucked into everything else that the religious right stands for. And for the reasons that we spent the first half hour of this podcast discussing, that is problematic to say the least. So we have this tension between, on the one hand, wanting to uh, respect and protect life, and also, on the other, to avoid getting into the politics of abortion. And so I have, you know, over the last year and a half, bringing it back to the, the first point that I made was, or first thing I mentioned, I've kind of come uh, full circle. I actually have some ideas that would go beyond this. I'm not going to share them today, uh, maybe on another podcast, but I can just say this, that the religious right, is a real problem for a lot of reasons, and it is something that we must avoid. Um, I think we'll talk more about it probably in articles on the century uh, going forward, but we have to avoid it. And thankfully, we can avoid it and still take steps as a church and as individual members to 
to support the pro-life position. There's more that I want to say on this, but I'm going to wait. Um, so maybe Lemuel has some something else that he'd like to say. Well, yeah, I agree with you, Jim. This is an issue that um, is sensitive for a lot of people, and myself included. Uh, I'll have uh, there are many who have been affected uh, by it in, in some way. We probably know someone who has considered or actually have gone through uh, an abortion. And the thing is, what I believe, not just on the political side, but also on the church side, if we provide more support for these expectant mothers that have that have this qualm going on in their mind as should I get an abortion or not, the more we provide for them, the more we put in a support system for them. I believe naturally the desire to actually complete an abortion will diminish on its own. And and that's the thing. If we try to make it a, an either or, or just really have no compassion on the mother for, for instance, for even considering that, that there's some calls in in politics to to make it a uh, offense that could be punishable by death uh, which i think is going a little too far we need to be trying to find a solution not just point out a problem is it a problem yes it's a problem it's become a really big problem in uh in a lot of circles right now it's, um you know even in the in the democratic party there is a wing uh, some say maybe as large as one out of three Democrats are actually pro-life. Uh, and the reason why they're pro-life is not just on the issue of abortion, they're, they're pro-life. Even They support life even after a child is born. They want to make sure that the child gets uh, an abundance of care. And that's the thing that we don't consider. If we moralize, as you say, Jim, have a support system in place. You know, expect a mother who um, is in a situation that thinks, oh, her life, her career is in jeopardy because of what happens, then there are some instances where it's not a choice on the woman. He could have been forced uh, and assaulted and resulting in this life coming up. Now, we can't just say, oh, you know, you have to be stuck with that and we're not going to provide you any support afterwards. But I think the more that we give alternatives, the more we provide a solution, uh, an alternative solution, the more this issue can be resolved. Yeah, uh, anyway, and I, I see that as, as a way to solve the problem, not just in the world at large, but also within our church. Now, Jim, you had an interesting statistic among evangelicals on abortion. Can you share what you found in your research about that? Yes. In, in the article that I recently wrote on the issue of abortion, which was in response to um, someone who thought that the church was somehow deviating from our pro-life position. Um, my, my review of the issues, the, the church was not doing that. Um, quite the opposite, in my opinion. Nevertheless, um, I was able to find, and it's, it, you know, it's not just something that I have, it's not private information that I have or knowledge that I have. You can find it online. One half to three quarters of women having abortions in the United States identify as either Protestant or Catholic, and depending on the survey I'm reading from my article now, um, 10 to 20 percent of women having abortions are evangelical. So we start the article with this because I want it to be made clear that there's a failure in these denominations, in, in the religious right, right, that um, is not being addressed. So you have persons 
when we were worshiping. I mean, I don't know that we're worshiping in person anymore, but when we when we used to see each other in person before COVID, you'd have persons that would sit in these things called pews, and you could actually go over and touch them and, and talk to them. There were people sitting in the pews in these in these churches that that were having issues, and they were manifest the issues were manifesting themselves in in this way, and and, and persons having abortions, and instead of supporting their own um, their own adherence. They they then turn and they decide, hey, we're going to make a, we're going to go to battle against against the culture. Hey, we have persons in our church that are struggling with these issues. We don't need to turn the focus to the culture. Let's deal with with helping persons who are in our church, or who we have the ability to help in society. And so I cite these statistics. I make the point that this abortion issue used to be a Catholic issue, and I'm not. This is not an attack on Catholics. It just is a matter of fact. You can look it up. It's, it's a historical fact. But in the 1970s, actually post-Roe versus Wade, there was a, a unification of Catholic and evangelical leaders on this issue. It was a way to uh, show solidarity with the United States in opposing, uh, to show, hey, the United States is moral. The United States is better than the than the communist countries that we were uh, in the Cold War with, right? Uh, and so we're going to manifest this by, uh, you know, going about changing our laws. And so the Catholics and conservative Protestants united and went on this, uh, you know, went on this uh, battle. But I, I end the article with, with this idea, this concept that I'll just read from it. Even if the religious right were to succeed in outlying abortion throughout the United States, abortions would still occur. So you can have a law, you know, against using drugs. People are still going to use drugs. You can have a law against any number of things. People are still going to to, to do that. And so that's true. Um, that's not an argument against law. It's just a reality. Um, abortions would be done in dark alleys and mentioned only in whispers. I'm reading from the article again. And if current statistics are reliable guides, approximately half of the women hiding in the shadows would be Catholic or evangelical. Think about that, what a misguided crusade. And so I think uh, the question relates to these statistics, and that's <laughs> you're going about to, to better society, and you're going to, you know, uh, go after the very people that you're, you're supposed to be serving. Like, it's just the most bizarre thing. And then, and then you know, well-meaning Adventists like myself, you know, a year and a half ago, say, hey, look, this, this issue of abortion is struggling to me, and not realizing that, you know, the persons that, you know, that are echoing the siren's call um, are actually going to lead us to a place that gets us where we're uniting with people that are not only moralizing, but hypocritically judging those who are in our own pews and our own uh, religious communities. And so, I haven't changed my position regarding abortion. I mean, really, it, it, but I've, I've simply said that, you know, this attempt to try to join with the, the political solutions or legislative fixes, uh, so-called, is, is misguided. And I don't have a desire to moralize or to condemn. I want to help people. And in helping them, hopefully we can save lives. Now, does that mean it's going to be perfect, that we're going to save every you know, unborn life that, you know, may, may be lost by abortion, whether it's legal or not, we won't. I mean, we won't be able to. Um, but we're not going to be able to, is my point, even if abortion were to be outlawed. It's, it's still going to occur. It's going to be 
unsafe and um, half the country is going to see us as part of the problem. And they would be right because we would be part of the problem. Now, the three of us are very concerned about racism penetrating the, within our church. Is there a connection between the advocacy of oppressed racial minorities and religious liberty? During the, the time of slavery, how was their religion oppressed? Well, basically, they had to abide by whatever religion their masters had taught them. Okay, and in, in most cases, in that day, it was it was Christianity, of course, but uh, with a lot of baggage. For one thing, uh, we have evidence historically that a lot of uh, slave masters had re- actually redacted Bibles that they gave to their slaves um, to take out verses that would encourage a slave uprising or to give thoughts to their slaves that they could actually be free according to the Word of God. And, you know, in any way that a people are oppressed, even though slavery has been abolished, a people can be oppressed in other ways well. And, you know, it comes, you know, historical instances come to mind, you know, in the 50s and the 60s during Jim Crow, and you had a lot of uh, black uh, individuals, some prominent who actually turned to Islam because Islam to them seemed to be a bit more uh, tolerant. And that is a sad uh, testimony to the type of Christianity uh, that has been been taught in our country uh, for over uh, a century. And it, it it gives the impression that you know Christians are oppressive, that Christians are only uh, interested in a certain type of ethnicity or, or what have you, and and this molds the culture, okay? And and I see a lot of of pictures or memes online that say, oh, you know, the Democrats were the slave owners back in the day, and so they're uh, so what they're trying to say is that it's the same thing that's going on today. Democrats basically have uh, blacks under their uh, <laughs> under their feet, uh, essentially by handing out welfare or whatever, just because bl- the larger block of, of the black electorate is supporting the Democratic Party. Okay, I'm not trying to preach um, politics here. I'm just I'm just stating the facts. So where there is oppression. On one issue, there is oppression on all issues, and that happens as well when it comes to religion. And the religion becomes skewed, and may not be that uh, Christianity uh, is forced upon anyone, but it, it becomes skewed in the sense that it is seen by many as very oppressive, as something that is not tolerant and not loving or winsome to the great many of people. And the more Christians imbibe in this ethnicity uh, identity thing that, oh, you know, we have to be a homogeneous society, uh, it sends not only the wrong message, but it also informs our politics because you have the Christian nationalists who drive, you know, the political machine. And 
they oppress in many ways. They oppress not only racially, they'll oppress also religiously. And so oppression is oppression. So I think in my mind, um, picking up with what Lemuel just stated is, or following up with what he stated is, there's a distinction between, for example, the issue of abortion, right? Where if the state says it's legal, or if a person advocates for it being legal, um, not that that's, you know, we're not taking a position here, but say someone were to do that, that's not an endorsement of the practice, right? You're not uh, forced to have an abortion because the government says it's legal, right? Whereas if you're in, you know, the Jim Crow South, you can't opt in or opt out of that one. Like, you're part of that, right? Whether you're white or black or, or whatnot, you're part of that. So you have an obligation in that setting to seek to reform government. And I think this is where the issues get uh, confused and conflated. People say, well, how can you be for uh, against uh, racial injustice and not be for uh, ending Roe versus Wade, for example? Well, they're different issues. They're different issues. And so though we don't have Jim Crow today, Right? There are still places in which state action is resulting in the oppression of minorities. It's most obviously seen in the criminal justice system. And so those issues we can't ignore because we're part of them, just like someone would be part of them in Jim Crow South, right? For the same reasons. Whereas with abortion... Nobody's advocating for the practice of abortion, but that it's legal, it allows persons to make a choice. Now, you can talk about things philosophically, theologically, however you want to address it, as to, you know, the rights of the unborn um, and how they're balanced with the, with the right of the mother to be able to choose to have an abortion. Fine. Have that discussion. At the end of the day, though, even if just so it's clear, even if Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, it would simply put the issue back on the states, and you would still have states like California and New York where abortion would be legal. And it would be legal for the foreseeable future in those states. So it's not as though you're going to truly be able to outlaw abortion across the nation. That's, it's, it's false. And the religious right knows that it's false. And so then the question becomes, why are they pushing this so hard if they know that this is false, and I'm, I'm not going to get there today, but we will get there. <laughs> we will get there. Just know that it's disingenuous. So those Adventists that are sympathetic to the pro-life position as a matter of policy, as was I, understand that it's disingenuous. Not, not everyone. There are many solid, good people in the grassroots. I, I've met many of them. I won't tell you how I've met them, but I've met them. Okay. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So... We're definitely looking forward to that article in the future. Check that out in American Century. Final question. What is the outcome you want to see in your involvement in American Century for the church and for the world? What I would like to see is definitely more awareness for these issues when it comes to the study of of history. And history is very important because we can see 
how things have happened in the past, certain actions uh, and certain things that certain groups or people do that have resulted in bad or good. And we can apply those lessons to us uh, here today. And the work of Sentry is basically to be like a Sentry or a guard uh, to preserve not only our liberties, but also our justice for all, that, so that everyone could have um, you know, freedom. When we talk about, oh, oh, liberty, but definitely, you know, when, when our framers put together the um, new Declaration of Independence, and they said that all men are created equal, what were they thinking of in their mind when we, there was still slavery, right? Okay, during that time. There is uh, analyses that say that, well, they saw that it was a, that it would be an issue that would be resolved in the future. Okay, I get that. But now that it's been resolved, there are still things that need to be resolved. And, uh, you know, I believe it's just the Christian way, uh, the way of Christ, to treat others as we would like to be treated. Whether we're in the minority or the majority, whether we're a Christian or not, uh, um, w- whatever religion you might be, I take take the example in in the story of Christ about the Good Samaritan. Okay, and I have an article up in Century regarding this when I talk about the Good Samaritan and what how that applies to us today. What what our Christian duty is is re- with regards to that. In the Samaritans were looked upon as, you know, a an apostate or a, or even as bad as infidels, according to the uh, the Judeans and Jews of their day, and so they were looked upon as basically enemies. So when this Jew was beaten up on the side of the road, and he was bypassed uh, by a priest and by a Levite, and then comes a Samaritan who's supposed to be this. Uh, this enemy of of the Jews, but he's the one who comes and uh, picks up this this broken man who's physically broken, also probably emotionally broken because he is robbed of everything, and he brings and pays with his own money for this man to stay somewhere where he could recuperate and heal. And what is Christ telling us in in doing that? For one thing, it teaches us about liberty. It teaches us that we shouldn't impose ourselves on other people, regardless of how we may see them as opposed to our theology or opposed to our doctrines or dogma or whatever. And it also helps us to see others in a light that helps us realize the absolute love of Christ, that Christ came to die for us while we were yet sinners basically estranged from God because of our iniquities. But what he, did he do? He gave his only begotten son. And I think, uh, you know, if America was truly a Christian nation, can okay, I say that not as, as, a, as a label or whatever, but truly uh, intrinsically and uh, um, ontologically Christian, that we would truly practice the way of Christ and not enforce ourselves upon others or enforce doctrines or whatever, and that we would treat others as we would like to be treated, equal treatment for all. And I know there's a bunch of uh, debate over that, or do you treat this person differently if they have uh, physical traits that are different? Okay, Uh, we're not talking about that. We're talking about 
treating other people how we would like to be treated. That is equality for all. And if we can apply that, then we are doing what Christ did, his ministry. And that's, I believe, the work that we must do. I would say that um, as Lemon was talking, it, it something occurred to me, and that is uh, American century, the concept of fighting for religious liberty is an outgrowth, right? It's the other side of the coin, right? But the, the, the thing is a belief in a certain type of God that we have. Right? We have a belief in a God that values freedom because he's seeking love, right? He values freedom. It's, it's right up there. So if we come from that perspective, and thankfully that's what the Bible teaches, despite the, uh, <laughs> the many uh, theological perversions that exist in the world, um, that God is love, right? To come from that place, right, where we have that understanding, and we go out into the world, and we say, how do we apply that concept, that God is love? It would mean, since God is seeking love, that we, like God does, give others freedom. Not, not token freedom, not the type of freedom that we, you know, the religious right pretends to extend, we'll say it that way, to persons that don't fit within its mold, right? Or wants to pretend to extend to them. Um, but actual freedom, where they're actually able to be something other than part of the, you know, the mob, the misguided mob, the group think. So that you could be a Hindu, practicing Hindu or Muslim or, or a non-believer, and that's okay. It's okay because God wants it that way, and not as the religious right would have us believe that God doesn't want it that way, that God wants everyone to fall in line behind this uh, false Christianity that's forming. Well, thank you so much to my brothers in ministry in the Religious Liberty Front. It's an honor to be part of this podcast with my brothers here today. It's hopefully we could do this live in the future once COVID is vanquished. And I want to thank you both for coming into this podcast and being a, a blessing and a source of support for one another in ministry, although we're separated by great distance. So thank you both for joining us on Healing the Nations. Lemuel, can you end us with a word of prayer, please? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Our Father, Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have. And uh, we want to exercise that liberty to do the right thing. And so we ask for your presence in our lives. We ask for your presence in our church. We even ask for your presence in our country and in the world today. We need your presence in all things. And I, we know, according to what you said in your word, uh, it will just only get worse. And just like as in the days of Noah, so shall your coming be. But we pray that as things fall apart around us, as people go at each other's throats, we pray that you will be in our lives through the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. In his character 
shine through, that we may not uh, be involved in the bickering and the strife that the world so loves, but that we may love one another, so that they will know that we are Christians through our love. And so, Lord, we ask in a special way that you be with um, Peter's endeavors and this podcast. We pray also for our work and our church. And today, there are many who are suffering. We know that the solution is in your word. But we also know that you would have people come to you, whosoever will. And not out of coercion, not out of force. And so please help us to extend this invitation to others as it is an invitation. And so that we we can further your kingdom, which is not of this world, but something that is to come. And we look forward to that kingdom. And we pray in the loving name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.